anyway, I appreciate being here with you all uh, these last two weeks, and it's been a real joy to be with you. You know, when I was, um, when I was 14 years old, I went to a Christian rock concert. It was the 80s, a very glamorous decade. Um, and I grew up Roman Catholic, and so um, going to a Christian rock concert was, it was like a feast for the senses. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It was rock music talking about God, and I had never seen anything like it, ever. And I went just amazed at the kind of energy and vibrancy that, that was there. And at the end, after the music finished, the lead singer of this band got up and started talking about God and God uh, wanting a relationship and that he sent his son Jesus. And this son Jesus has made a way for humans to come into a fullness of life and that the only thing you had to do in order to experience that fullness of life was to put your faith in Jesus and ask him to come into your life. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but I realized later that what I was given when I was 14 years old was the gospel. I didn't know what to say. I didn't even know how to respond, but I realized later that what had happened is someone had stood up and they had presented the idea that God had saving power and that that saving of power was available in Jesus Christ. It was the first time I had ever, ever heard the gospel. And, and, and even to ask the question, and today what I want to do is I want to explore the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And maybe as you heard the, the gospel presentation in its kind of outline form that was given to me, you might think, oh, that was an all right presentation. I'm like, hey, it was good to me. I mean, it sounded, it sounded good. And it was something that I wanted and something that I eventually appropriated to my life and put my faith in Jesus. But the question, even today among Christians, what is the gospel, can be a little bit of a uh, contentious question. And so one of the things, I'm a New Testament scholar. That's what I do. I have a PhD in New Testament. Um, and like Rick said, I mean, Rick's a little bit of a yard sale up here. Did you see like things were flowing off? I mean, it happened in the back too. I don't know. I mean, I don't know Rick, but I'm just saying it's just, you know, I, I don't, okay. I don't know. Is he, is, oh, there he is. There he is. Perfect. But I think one question that I want to ask here with Ezekiel, because we're at a really in interesting spot. Ezekiel's divided into these two halves. This first half is judgment, and this idea of Ezekiel's vocation of being a priest, but God's calling him to be a prophet, to, to go from being a healer and a reconciler to being a disruptor. And that God says, hey, be a disruptor, but hey, here's the other thing. No one's going to listen to you. That's the first half of Ezekiel. But the second half of Ezekiel, and what I want to talk about today is this idea it's the gospel according to Ezekiel. It's the idea that, that there's been this movement from, from judgment and, and this call to repentance to now a proclamation of hope and promise. And so what I want to do today, and as we think about the, the rest of the Bible, every book of the Bible has, each author has a different emphasis about what this good news of God's saving power is about. Different metaphors, you think in like different, the idea, some people look at the gospel as a movement from slavery to freedom. Other people, like the, the, the Apostle Paul seems to look at the, the movement of the gospel as being from guilt to righteousness. Or other people from alienation to reconciliation, that these are all different metaphors of what the gospel is about. And what I want to ask today is, for Ezekiel, if Ezekiel were standing here today, how would he give the gospel? 
And what we have, I think, is in Ezekiel chapter 36, we have a very nice summary of the gospel. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read Ezekiel 36, 20 through, 22 through 27. And if you could find that in your Bible or in your app or whatever it is, and once you find that, what we'll do and what I'll ask you to do is once you found that in your Bible, is if you would stand in honor of God and his word, and I'm going to read this out loud for us. So Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 22, once you find it, stand. And I'll read this for us. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and shall clean you from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes to be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. And so from this passage, I simply want to explore these three metaphors, these three movements that we have in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, we could go on... I mean, look, if we had more time, we could talk about Ezekiel and the gospel according to Ezekiel for weeks. But in this passage, there are three distinct movements as we think about the gospel Ezekiel style. And the first movement is this idea that uh, is this movement from being stained to being clean. The first movement is from being stained to being clean. As we look in verse 20. Uh, As we look in verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. The stain that Israel had was from idolatry. They had turned not to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, from the one true God. They had not turned in their time of trouble. They had not turned to Yahweh, they had turned to the gods of the various nations around them. Egypt to the south, they thought, hey, if we broker a peace deal with Egypt and adopt their gods, they'll protect us. Or the Babylonians are coming in, so maybe we need to pray and honor their god, Tammuz. And if we pray to that god, maybe that the Babylonians will relent. And so what we see earlier in the book is that one of these angels gives Ezekiel a tour of the temple because Ezekiel's kind of puzzled. The glory of the Lord, Ezekiel is sitting in this refugee camp by this irrigation ditch and he looks up and all of a sudden the glory of the Lord's coming right at him. And he's like, wait, 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 I'm a priest and I know that the glory of the Lord is supposed to be in the temple. But here it is on the, in this refugee camp in Babylon, what's it doing here? 
And later in the book, after this vision in chapter 1, this, he, Ezekiel gets another vision where he's taken back by the Spirit into this temple, and he looks around, and there's these gods everywhere. There's the, these Egyptian gods here. There's this god Tammuz that's standing in the, in the courtyard. And in the very center, almost by the Holy of Holies, you have all of these men of Israel, and they're not facing the Holy of Holies. They're facing back to the east where they're watching the sunrise and they're worshiping the sun. I'm not even facing you. You get the idea that they're not even facing God. They're facing the sun. And so this stain, this, this produces a stain. This is the kind of thing that it provokes in that chapter, in chapter 11, it provokes the jealousy of God. And he's the only being in the whole universe that's allowed to be jealous because it all belongs to him. And their idolatry has provoked him to jealousy. It has provoked him to wrath and it has stained them. Now, you think, like me, you're like, well, that's dumb. Idols. That's so stupid. Like, come on. And it sounds so weird. Doesn't it sound weird? Like, Tammuz, which is also the Greek god Adonis. I didn't know if you knew that. That's kind of a weird thing. I don't know if you even know Tammuz. But the idea that, and you're like, that's so, that's so weird that they would worship this other god. Now, I've heard it said that other people's idols are apparent to them, but I'm very comfortable with my own idols. Like, it doesn't seem strange when I, when I worship my own idols. So, a little bit of the, just as we go through the gospel according to Ezekiel, and he says, look, God will cleanse them from their stain, but they need to know that they have been unclean. See, there's a movement in the gospel. When we talk about the good news of God's saving power, there's all, and here's the thing, the good news is about moving from problem to solution, It's moving from bad news to good news. And the bad news is that the nation of Israel, they were idolaters. And as we think about idolatry, here in Southern California, in Orange County, we have a pastor at the church that we go to. He calls um, Orange County, it's a shiny darkness. It's a shiny darkness. In other words, the idols of of our day and age, they don't seem strange to us. It's not like we look back at the Israelites and we, or the people of Israel who are like, oh, that sounds so stupid. They might look at us and be like, what are those people doing? But they would be blind to their own idolatry like we're blind to our own idolatry. And if you think about an idol, what is an idol? I think a good way of thinking about an idol is we think about this first movement, this movement from uncleanness to being cleansed. An idol is something, a place where you seek your ultimate significance a place where you go to for security, and a place where you seek satisfaction. These are the idols of our age. Wherever you go for ultimate significance, where do you go for worth, for legitimacy? What do you look to? Maybe on paper you're like, I believe the Lord is where I seek my worth and legitimacy, but in life you probably look other places. Whether it's work or career, or what you do. Being a good mom, Being a good dad, being a good CEO, being a good employee, whatever that is. And we we all lapse into idolatry of some kind or other. We're human, and we are prone, like the song says, we are prone to wander. We are prone to staining, self staining. Do you think about security? Maybe on paper you're like, the Lord is my security, but it sure helps to have that $200,000 in the bank. 
on paper the Lord, but in reality, where I really sleep well at night is when I know that I have what? X, whatever it is. I have this house. I have this place. I have this investment. I know I can fall back on this. And so we wonder, what, what are these idols that we look to for security? My political party is in power. Maybe a place where you go to seek satisfaction. Again, we might be blind to our own idols. But is there a place where you go to for joy or excitement? And you might again on paper say, the Lord is the place, the Lord is my joy. But I still binge on Netflix every weekend. Right? I, I don't know what it is. I'm just, I'm, I, I know no one else can, can relate to that. It's just me. I'll just preach to myself. That's okay. Okay? But the idea is, we have, there are idols in our world. They might be invisible to us. And we might not realize that they stain us. But the movement of the gospel, what God says and what God says through Ezekiel, there's a promise that God says, I will cleanse you from your uncleanness. I will cleanse you from your uncleanness. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And God says, you need to be cleansed. The good news is, I will cleanse you. I guess one thing about the gospel that we need to understand and that we need to drill deep into our hearts is the gospel is the idea that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He not only does it for us, but he does it within us that we cannot do for ourselves. That's the core of the gospel. The, God, the good news is, even though you are dirty that, or, or unclean or stained, and maybe you've done that to yourself, or maybe someone else has done that to you, the news of God's saving power is that God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And the first thing that Ezekiel says is that what you cannot do for yourself is you cannot clean yourself. But the good news is God says, I will cleanse you. I will cleanse you. And so I think it deserves reflection for us as we think about this first movement of the gospel according to Ezekiel, is to ask this question, is there something in you, something you've seen, something you've done, that you feel like, I cannot cleanse that, and that cannot be cleansed. There's something tainted about me. There's something I've done, something I've seen, something someone else has done to me that has made me tainted, stained, unclean. And I will speak on behalf of Ezekiel. I will speak on behalf of God. There is nothing that you have done or will ever do that will cause God to abandon you. Ever. The gospel is that there is saving power available. We know on this end, and if Ezekiel were here, he would say, it is through Jesus Christ. But there's nothing you have said or done or that someone else has done to you that disqualifies you from the fullness of life that is available in God's saving power through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the first movement of the gospel, according to Ezekiel. It's beautiful. I, I love in the video with Tim that he, uh, Tim Mackey is the guy who, who does the Bible Project. There's a great interview this week. Um, Preston Sprinkle has a podcast called Theology in the Raw, and he interviews Tim about the Bible Project. If you ever find, if you can find it, it's a great interview to listen to, um, but take a look at it. But I love what he said is that they're at a point 
where they're in Babylon and they're like, is God done with us? Is God done with Israel? We have this rich history, but now here we are, is God done? And Ezekiel is the first one to say, God is not done. And of course, I get the privilege to stand up here today and to say to you, no matter what you have done or seen or have had done to you, God is not done. He's not done. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Okay, second movement. I'm getting pumped up. I'm getting pumped up. Okay, the second movement of the gospel, according to Ezekiel, is this. It's a movement from being hard to being soft. If you look in verse 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And what God is saying, what Ezekiel is saying, he's saying at first to Israel, you have a hard heart. You have a hard heart. And God says, I need to soften it. And um, I guess the, inter- the, the thing about hard heart, the hardening of the heart, if you look back at the, at the Old Testament narrative, the hardening of the heart is there throughout. Especially when you look at Exodus, the Pharaoh, he's got his, his grips on the nation of Israel, all these slaves in Egypt, he doesn't want to let them go, and that his heart is hardened. And that, but the nation of Israel, as they go out in the wilderness, that they come, they come across the Red Sea and everything's great, but that, that their heart is hardened. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. And this idea of the hardness of heart, it's this metaphor. And what we, what we mean by it, there's kind of two things that Ezekiel means by a hard heart. The first thing that hard-hearted means is that um, is someone who is consumed with pride. Being hard-hearted means being prideful. Being hard-hearted means I will decide for myself. See, when Israel was dealing with idolatry and they had these various forces bearing down on them and Yahweh was saying, I will be your God, the nation of Israel said, "Uh, no, we will do it our way. We'll broker a treaty. We'll worship these other gods. We'll do it our own way. It was out of pride. I will decide for myself. I'm not going to listen to God. I'm not going to be open to God's commands, God's plan, God's design, or even God's grace. So the first thing about being hard-hearted is pride. Second thing about being hard-hearted, earlier in chapter 11, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel kind of um, foreshadows this after chapter 33 that he's going to go into this kind of restoration, this promise. And in chapter 11, he defines a hard heart as a heart that is divided in its allegiance. That he says, I'm going I'm I'm to take your hard heart and I'm going to make it an undivided heart. So the idea of moving from hard to soft, that a, a hard heart is a prideful heart and it's a divided heart. It's a divided according to its allegiance. And I think it just deserves our reflection as we think about the movement, the second movement of the gospel, according to Ezekiel, that's this movement from hard-heartedness to a soft-heartedness, is to ask myself and to ask you, is there a place in your life where you are hardening to the things of God? Maybe there's something, there's something in there. There's something that you, you're like, I, I know I probably ought not be going this way, but the more I hear other people telling me that, or the more I hear God, the more hardened I'm getting towards following him. And again, I'm not, saying, I'm not talking about people losing their salvation. I'm just talking about being a human being following Jesus. 
that there are times where God is going to say, hey, I think you're getting hard here. I think you're getting hardened. And maybe it's that you're getting prideful a little bit or that you're getting divided in your allegiance. But once again, the gospel according to Ezekiel, the gospel, is that God will do for you what only he can do for you, what only he can do in you, which is to take your heart of stone, to take it out, and to replace it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a heart that is open to the things of God, a heart that is open-handed, that's asking God, God, what would you have? Your will be done, not my will be done. That I might have an undivided allegiance to you. And that the gospel is this movement from being hardened towards God to being softened towards God. And again, I don't know, you might have heard the gospel a thousand times in your lifetime. And if that's true, awesome, because every time you hear it, you'll probably hear something new. Something will resonate in your heart. And so it's never, I need to hear the gospel over and over and over again so it re-resonates within my heart. You might be here and you might have never, ever heard the gospel. And you might be thinking, I am hard. I am hardened to the things of God. And the only reason I'm here is because someone drugged me here. God can do for you and in you what only God can do. He will do that. And so this first movement, from stained to clean, God will do that. The second movement, from hard to soft, God can do that and God will do that. A heart transplant, from stone to flesh. Pride can be broken. There can be an awareness to God's spirit, an awareness and a yieldedness to God. So that's the second movement. There's a third movement, and it's a movement from death to new life. From death to new life. Verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules. All right. Verse 37, or chapter 37, is one of the most interesting chapters in all of the Bible. It's, it's right after this. He talks about, I'll give you a new spirit. Now, the word spirit, spirit is a really interesting word both in Hebrew and in Greek. The, the word in Hebrew is the word ruach. And the word ruach can oftentimes be translated as either spirit, wind, or breath. It's the same word. So like in, in Genesis chapter 2, when man is formed from the dust of the ground... God breathes his ruach into him, his breath. He breathes the, the breath in him. But later on, like when Moses, when Moses parts the Red Sea, it's by a strong eastern ruach, a wind. And here in Ezekiel, the word that you read in your Bible for spirit is the word ruach. And it's this, it's this really interesting idea of this unseen, mysterious power. It's this, it's this weird thing, like Jesus will say in, in John chapter 3, you know, the Spirit, in the New Testament, it's the word pneuma. But he says the Spirit, it's kind of like ruach, like the ruach is this really interesting thing. No one knows where it comes from or where it's going because you can't see it. You can only see the effects of it. And so this unseen, mysterious movement of God that Ezekiel is going to say, I'm going to put, God says, I will put my ruach within you. And then he goes and he talks about this really interesting thing in chapter 37. Look along with me in verse 30, chapter 37. 
the hand of the Lord was upon me. Anybody else getting pumped up by this? I mean, I'm getting pumped up because this is really good stuff. This is, this is so good. I mean, the idea that God will put his, his spirit in us and it's, gonna, and it's coming right here. Verse 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the Ruach of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he led me, and, and, and this valley was full of bones. Just imagine, just imagine a valley that's just full of bones. And he led me around among them. Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause ruach to enter into you. My translation says breath. I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. This is, this is Genesis 2 again. This is the spirit. I will put my spirit into you. I will put my breath into you. And then, and then you have this ruach that blows through the valley, and it rattles all the bones. And so the spirit is moving. And this idea that God is saying that I will go, you will be dead. And it says that they're dry, they're old bones and they're dry bones. So when he says they're old bones and they're dry bones, it's not like, I mean, they're not mostly dead. Okay? For you Monty Python fans out there, like, they're all dead. They're not saying, I'm not dead yet. You know, they're dead. Not only are they dead, the bodies have decomposed, and the bones, and when the bodies are together, like, the bones kind of stay together, but these bones are so dry that they've fallen out of sorts from each other. They're not connected. And so this idea that not only are these old and dead, but that they are, they're so dead that they are scattered, and, and later on we're going to find that this is an image for the nation of Israel. It's dead and scattered. And so what God says is, you know what, you know what these bones need? They need ruach. They need spirit. They need breath. And the only way that that's going to happen is if I breathe on them. If I myself breathe on them. Man, no one, no one can bring old bones back to life. No one. We've probably all stood at gravesides, and we've wished. We've wished that we could breathe new life into someone that we love. No one can do that. And this is the gospel, that God will do for you and in you what only God can do for you and in you. God and God alone can do this. And the third movement of the gospel is to go from dry, dead bones into a living, revitalized, renewed human being. Verse 10, I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And in verse 14, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God does in us what we cannot do 
for ourselves. The beautiful thing about the gospel according to Ezekiel, it seems as though Ezekiel is a very significant book for the authors of the New Testament. Particularly if you think about the Gospel of John, there's some, that, that um, John will, is going to use a lot of these images, the idea of water and spirit being cleansed and being renewed, that Jesus says, hey, look, Nicodemus, if you want to be born again, you've got to be born of water and spirit. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, haven't you read Ezekiel? He doesn't really say that, but that's, what, that's the idea. That if you're a good reader, you realize, oh, of course, he's talking about Ezekiel. I'll cleanse you and I'll put my spirit in you. And John will later on talk about, you know what? Jesus shows up and he says, I'm the good shepherd. In Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 34, he talks about the shepherds of Israel. What we need is a new shepherd, a good shepherd, a shepherd who's going to feed the sheep, not feed themselves. 500 years later, after the book of Ezekiel, God sends his shepherd. He sends his son, Jesus. And we know that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. It's not just mere water that cleanses us. It's the precious blood of the lamb, according to the book of Revelation, that cleanses us. And it also says that God will send his spirit on the day of Pentecost when we read the book of Acts, that that's the sending of the son, the sending of the spirit. That's Ezekiel. The New Testament is enlivening this, this text of Ezekiel. I think the really interesting thing about the gospel, and like we've been saying, it's God doing for us and in us what we cannot do for ourselves, but only God can do. Look in verse 30, or chapter 36, verse 23, just to get a sense of this. 20, or 36, 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. Verse 24. I will take from you from the nations and gather you. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water. I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. I will put it within you. I will remove. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. God is the one who's doing this, and only God. As we wrap up, and as we, you think about this idea, what is, it that God, what is it that you cannot do for yourself that God needs to do? What is this gospel? How does the gospel need to be appropriated into your life today? Maybe it's the first time. Maybe this is about you finally laying down all the weapons against God and opening yourself up to a soft heart before God. Maybe this is just one area of your life that you're like, I'm getting hardened here, or I'm getting stained here or I'm dying here, and I need God to cleanse me, or I need God to breathe new life into me here in this spot. I think one of my favorite passages um, from um, this book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is um, C.S. Lewis, um, there's a character in this book. His name is Eustace Scrub. What a great name. Eustace. Sorry if there's anybody in here named Eustace. Um, um, Eustace finds himself... um, He's kind of the biggest wet noodle in the whole story. He accidentally gets brought in, accidentally, gets brought into Narnia, this land where Aslan is the king. Aslan is the Christ figure who's this lion. Um, And uh, Eustace gets brought in, and he's complaining the whole time. Well, they come to this island, and and while Eustace is out exploring, he finds the, the lair of a dragon. And if you know anything about a lair of a dragon, it's full of treasure. And Eustace is kind of this, this, this pasty, 
greedy kid. And so he gets into the, to the lair, and the dragon is dead, but um, he, he sees all the treasure, and he's like, oh, this treasure, this is so awesome. And so he grabs this ring, this, this bracelet, he puts it on his arm, and he kind of shoves it up his arm. And, and, he, and it says, I love the way that Lewis puts it, he says um, that he was, um, uh, he was sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his hearts, in his heart, and he becomes a dragon. So this little boy becomes a dragon, and it causes all kinds of problems. But one of the things, one of the problems was this, this ring on his arm. He's a dragon, but because he was a boy when this ring was on, but then he, it fit and it slid on and off. But now as a dragon, he can't get it off. And it's this one thing that he can't get off. And so here is the story of the de-dragoning of Eustace. He says, last night I was more miserable than ever. That beastly armoring was hurting more than anything. Edmund asks, is that all right now? Eustace laughed, a different laugh from any Edmund had heard him give before. He slipped the bracelet easily off his arm. He said, there it is, he said, and anyone who likes it can have it as far as I'm concerned. Well, as I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would become of me. And then, but mind you, it may have all been a dream. I don't know. Go on, said Edmund, with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You might think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand Well, it came close to me, and it looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but it wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know. Now that you mentioned it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to go where it told me, so I got up and I followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. And there was always this moonlight over and around the lion wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before, and on top of this mountain there was this garden, trees, fruit, everything. In the middle of it there was this well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath, with marble steps going down into it. The water was clear as anything, and I thought, if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me, I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said these words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I didn't have any clothes on, and I was suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things, and, and snakes cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began, began coming off all over the place, and I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness, or like I was a banana. It's great. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it, and I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw they were all hard and rough and wrinkly and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, I said. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get that one off too. So I scratched and tore again, and under this skin, it peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying behind the other one and went down to the well for my bathe. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? 
for I was longing to bathe my legs. So I scratched away for the third time and got off another skin, just like the others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. The lion said, but I don't know if he spoke, you'll have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back, and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place. It hurts like bilio, but it's such fun seeing it come away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled all the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done before. Myself, the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I'd been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now, that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. God will do what only God can do in us. We might scratch and peel and do whatever we can in our best laid plans. How do we cleanse ourselves? How do we, uh, how do we re-enliven ourselves? How do we do this? How, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God will do for us what only God can do for us, what we cannot do for ourselves. Let's pray. Just as we, as we're, as we're praying, as we're just focusing our minds now on God, on Jesus, just take a, a couple minutes and just ask God, is there anything that you need to cleanse in my life? God, is there anything that you need to soften in my life? God, is there anything that you need to breathe life new into my life? And just as we're sitting here, just ask God to do it. Father, we, we want to yield ourselves to the Lordship of your Son, Jesus, to the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, I pray that you would bring to mind the things that we need to let you into, into our lives, so that you can do the work that only you can do. Father, we're grateful this morning for a reminder of what the gospel is. The gospel is your saving power made available through Jesus Christ.
we want to claim that for ourselves today through faith. And if there's someone, anyone here that has not yet done that, I pray, Father, that you would, uh, you would lead them up here, that we would talk, that there would be a place or someone around them that they could talk about how to officially make that part of their lives. Father, we know you love us. We're so grateful for the work of your son, Jesus, for the work of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.